0: Hello, Dr. Coons. How are you? Tell Hello, us Eddie.
1: Uh, Very well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, okay.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, for those who may not be familiar, and shame on you if you're not familiar. <laughs>
1: yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I teach philosophy at the University of Texas in Austin. I've been there uh, 35 years now, did my PhD at UCLA, and um, let's see, I, I work mostly in, in metaphysics, and as you said, philosophy of religion and sort of related areas. Um, trained as an analytic philosopher, but very interested now in Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas.
0: Right, rock on. Uh, <laughs> so it, you picked the uh, all the good parts of the country to go to school: UCLA mm-hmm. and then Austin, and uh, it's, went to Michigan
1: State. That was also a lovely place. Oh yeah, it was nice well. very cold though.
0: If you like snow, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Uh, so have you always been a Christian? Uh, did you grow up in a Christian home? Yeah, or? I
1: grew up in a very devout um, Christian home. That's right. Um, mother and father, you know, serious Christians. Uh, when I was in high school, I got actually involved with Campus Crusade. Um, and that kind of that helped expose me to things like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer actually came up. And, and that I think that was one of the first uh, philosophical thoughts I had already when I was in high school. Went to college, didn't really know what philosophy was. My advisor told me to take a course in uh, philosophy. So I did. And it started with the ancient Greeks. Uh, and I just immediately got hooked. So philosophy ever since, basically.
0: Yeah, that's um, it, it, philosophy is one of those things. It just, it. it, it either you're turned off or it just grabs you and hooks you and, and there's no escaping. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. My son is studying philosophy right now at Yale and uh, my two daughters, zero interest in philosophy. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah. It's an interesting division.
0: Well, great, great job. It, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yale, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. At least you got one of them. Yeah. Yeah. My girls are just like, no. No, I don't want anything to do with it. It, I'm so used to, you know, having, you know, discussions and things and, and being, you know, a big fan of critical yeah. thinking uh I'll, yeah I'll my daughter
1: them. my daughter when she was young when she didn't even go to sleep she she knew how to do this she when i started her bed, she said daddy do we know that god exists well okay <laughs> so <laughs> she didn't really i don't think she really wanted the answer she just wanted to be able to stay up a few minutes like longer and she knew she could oh, not resist <laughs> yeah
0: so let me tell you the story about thomas aquinas and yeah that's <laughs> yeah, right, exactly yeah yeah uh yeah, my mind—they—they they get so tired of the that doesn't follow. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, it's
1: sometimes funny, it's the hard to take... in people's thinking. It's not a big. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you don't, in most social social
0: yeah right. you don't win people over. You don't win people over. Count, I mean, just calling out fallacies. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because I'm—I'm known as the fallacy guy amongst my first, kind of a, a running joke because. Yeah, yeah. Uh I'll joking around, I'll be like, oh yeah, that's a genetic fallacy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh something like that. So what got you interested in Aquinas particular in Thomism?
1: Yeah, a good question. So uh it was um I'm probably pretty well into my career, I think about, about maybe 20 years ago. So I'd already been or 25, somewhere in there. I've been a philosopher for 10 or 15 years and um, actually I was just teaching a lot of logic at the time and I wanted to do uh, formal logic mostly but I wanted to be able to apply formal logic to real world problems and Natural language arguments and that sort of thing, so I was just looking for arguments. So that well, there's Aquinas, right? For five ways, let's let's dig those out. I know they're not very good arguments, right? That's what I was taught. And, uh, dusted them off and looked at them. And at the time, actually, I've been working on causation independently in, as a part of my metaphysics. And uh, you know, looked at the, the second and third way, especially. And I thought, hmm, actually, these kind of interesting arguments, right? <laughs> uh, not not uh, as not fallacious, again, as, as I thought, as I've been taught, they were. Um, I mean, you can you can give fallacious interpretation. You can interpret them as fallacies if you want, but that's you know, that's not the way you're supposed to approach philosophy, especially when you're dealing with a great mind. You you have to try and figure out what what's the argument, really, and uh, they turn out to be quite good arguments. I think. So that, that kind of turned me on to Aquinas. And then you start reading more of him, and it's just, you know, he, again, he's addictive. Uh,
0: yes. It, you, you want to kind of master his level of thinking you want to get inside his head and really think like yeah. he did it's so difficult
1: there's almost no question you can think of in theology that he doesn't hasn't addressed somewhere
0: that yeah that that is true um he he wrote a lot um
1: yeah <laughs> they say uh, he had three secretaries working at once and he would just dictate uh three wow. different books at once to these three uh, scribes uh, Man, an amazing that's... mind
0: yeah, I, I felt the same way about uh, the five ways. It was, um, oh, that's been debunked so many times. Oh, this yeah. is a fallacy. And, and like you said, you got to steel man the position, you got to yeah. try and you know yeah. uh, understand it from their perspective.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah my, my colleague, Dan Bonavac here at UT and I are actually just starting to work on a, on a book on the five ways. And that'll be the theme, really, which is, you know, let's find the best argument here. Let's not, let's not dismiss it uh, uh, too quickly. And, and in particular, I think a lot of people, you know, I'll go back to Anthony Kenney, um, think, think that the arguments depend upon outdated Aristotelian cosmology and physics. Uh, you know, the crystalline spheres and, uh, you know, uh, and all of that. And I I think that's just wrong. Um, I think that uh, they all depend on principles that are much more enduring than anything, any of the secondary or tertiary parts of Aristotle's uh, cosmology.
0: Yeah, there's, I've noticed amongst a lot of people who dismiss um, the five ways that it doesn't seem that they really understand you know exactly. You know, like for example, the the argument from design or the teleological argument. It's not. You know, they'll they'll think it's like intelligent design or something like that. And it's like, right. no, that's it, it is so much deeper than that. It is, you know, the, the metaphysics there is just uh, uh, so robust.
1: Um, yeah we're finding that's the hardest one actually for us the fifth way we're still working on it um but uh because on the one hand it seems like that's the most intuitive in a sense but but when you start digging into it it's 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 pretty difficult to work it out
0: yeah i agree it's uh, i just if people would think about it at least in the proper way you know Mm -hmm. uh basically you know everything has a pointedness it has a yeah. um it's not like we're looking at dna strands and saying oh look it's designed you know right. uh it, it's it's more about um the fundamentals of of things that are that yeah. exist
1: right um, yeah, this is, and it's interesting, because this is an area that, that analytic philosophy is sort of catching up with Aquinas and Aristotle in recent years, there's been a big boom in what's called powers ontology, thinking about causal powers, both active and passive powers. And all of that is um, quickly leads you to teleology final causation purposes. Um, because if, if an electron has the power to repel other electrons, it will have that power even if there aren't any other electrons around, right? It, 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 that power itself has reference to a merely possible future, right? And it says this electron is sort of ordered to a future where if it does encounter other negatively charged things, it will repel them. And so that's already uh, purpose in, in, the, in the Aristotelian sense of the word. So that's become rehabilitated. A lot of people now are taking this sort of thing much more seriously than they used to. Uh, so at least I get you the first the first step of the fifth way.
0: Uh, yeah. There
1: is indeed purpose in nature. I think that that's that's... I'll find much more agreement about that nowadays among my analytic colleagues than I would have twenty years ago, let's say. And then to get from there to God, of course, it's it's not easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Step.
0: Well, that's you know, that's I mean, that's that's why uh, Aquinas had five steps. Yeah. <laughs> it
1: was well, the uh, other thing that people misunderstand about the five ways is that at the end of each five ways he says, "And this we all call God," and and people read that and think, "Oh, okay, so." Natural theology is done, right? Once you've got through the five ways, you've already gotten to the God who's omnipotent and omniscient and and all the rest. And that's not the case at all. The five ways is just the first five steps or the first one complex step on what in in Thomas's natural theology goes on for another uh, 40 some articles uh, in in the Summa Theologia. You know, he hasn't even established there's one God yet, much less that he's all powerful and all good. And all that comes much later. And it's very, very carefully worked out step by step. So, you know, read someone like Dawkins, god delusion it spends a page and a half i think on five ways and he, and mostly he just says well this isn't god right first mover well yeah and i mean when Aquinas says we call that god he just means it's just you know a foreshadowing of future attractions right wow. uh, you know look look for me to then eventually show you that this is indeed god um he's not actually claiming that he's proven that god has all the t- typical characteristics of that stage but it's of course a crucial first step because if you don't if you don't have an uncaused first cause of being and necessity and so on uh then you're never going to be able to get to god via the kind of approach that that thomas takes
0: yeah i think western thought modern day western thought uh gets in the way of trying to understand the scholastics um yeah it's there was a huge
1: revolt against aristotle right in in the 16th 17th century um, and so the baby was thrown out with the bathwater. water used the, the, uh, the, cliche, right. Um, yeah. um there were undoubtedly, I mean, the problem of course was that Aristotle had been so in, impressive, uh, that, that there was a kind of excessive deference that's paid to him at a certain point. Every little thing he says has got to be right. And, yeah. and of course that turned out to be wrong. Right. And so then Descartes and the others say, okay, so let's just throw the whole thing out and right? start all over again. And that was a huge mistake. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think and with you know Aristotle, his, his metaphysics is crucial uh, to understanding you know uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, no,
1: just, no question. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to bear in mind here is you know it you can't really even can go directly from Aristotle to Aquinas because Aquinas is doing here is drawing on a two thousand year research project basically that Aristotle starts, but that other people contribute to Plotinus, Avicenna, and others, and and, and Aquinas knows all of that. And so he's, you know, at the time, he's one of the most well read, most educated people of history, right? And he's yeah. able to pull together all of that and synthesize it. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, Aristotle is, is, you crucially have to understand Aristotle, but you should also know a little bit about the tradition that leads from Aristotle onward. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. That's, but um, that's.
0: It seems, uh, like I've, I've heard stated before, Aquinas seemed to be kind of trying to take, you know, um, empiricism and rationalism and, and find a common middle ground that they could work together with the natural theology. And yeah, um, That's right. Yeah.
1: I, yeah, I mean, given Aristotle's approach... I mean it's pretty clear that neither rationalism nor empiricism can make sense right it really you have to take into account all the different powers of the human mind um both sensitive and and rational um and that's that's what Aristotle and Thomas do so well and then people again as you say you know someone like Hume or, or Barclay just tries to go one way to the exclusion of the other and that just leads to disaster
0: all Right. So for those people who may be watching and they're scratching their head, talking about the five ways, uh, let's uh, briefly go through them. With part one, the argument for motion, um, Yeah. It, it, what do you think is probably the biggest mistake people make when they evaluate this?
1: Or. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so it is. Well, I guess there's a couple of things. One is that the word motion, um, both in the Greek and Latin here, um, mean uh, change of any kind, actually. So it's not just locomotion, movement in space, but things becoming warmer or bigger or whatever. Those, those all would count as motion. So we're really interested in, in, the, in the nature of change. And I think um, another mistake that people make here is, is this is where it's very tempting to think that this depends on some kind of peculiar physics that Aristotle's relying on that we no longer believe in. In particular, people think that uh, Aristotle was working in a world where there was no inertia. So once things, something gets moving, it, you needed something to keep it moving. It wouldn't just sort of move on its own, um, because they think that he, he just had a physics where there was no inertia, where, where everything that moves has got to be kind of pushed along by something else. Uh, that's not actually true, um, because, um, you know, Aristotle's uh, sorry, this will be a slight diversion into his, his actual astronomy. But his astronomical theory was that the heavens are these uh, concentric crystalline spheres that are rotating eternally, and so the sun is 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 is, lo- is embedded in this crystalline sphere that's constantly rotating, um, and um, there's nothing that's moving it, so to speak, except itself. It is it is it is um, um, well, it's being moved by a kind of intelligence or something, but. But it's inertial, right? It's not, it's not like there's gears there that are kind of moving the, the sun around. It is just moving around by its nature. So, so that's not the issue, right? The issue is not, is there inertia in the world? Um, and so then the question is, what is the issue? right? <laughs> so um, so why, why does he think... Okay, so one more, one more thing that people get wrong. Um, this is really important. Uh, is that people assume, and this is Richard Dawkins' good example. People assume this is an argument for a beginning of the universe. Right? A temporal beginning of the universe, right? But there had to be something that, in the very beginning, got things moving, and 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 so that's and that's God, and that's clearly not right, because um, because Thomas thinks that philosophy cannot prove that the universe had a beginning in time. He he thinks that philosophy has to be agnostic in the question of the beginning at time. So he thinks that the first way works even in a world where there's no beginning in time, where the universe has eternally been moving this way. And these spheres have been moving themselves in some sense forever without anything pushing them. And yet they still he still thinks you need to have a cause uh, for the moving that's going on. So uh, so I've got a particular take on the first way. It's somewhat unique, I think. I don't know of anyone else who's taken exactly this tack. So just fair warning. Right. This is Kuhn's interpretation. First way, it's not the standard interpretation. Um, but I think you have to go back a bit here and you have to understand uh, Aristotle's conception of time itself. What is time. And he's got a very interesting theory, which I think is a very attractive theory once you understand it. And th- that is that time is the measure of change. So in order for time to happen, change has to happen. Change comes first and time is the measure of that. That's, you might think, well duh, right? But actually the modern conception of time is quite different. The modern conception of time is that time is a kind of fourth dimension. It's, it's a sort of events spread out in this fourth dimension. And change is just being in different states at different points in time, right? So to move from uh, Austin to Dallas is just to be in Austin at one point in time, Dallas at a later point in time, and various other points in between. That's what motion is. So the modern conception takes time for granted and then tries to define motion or change in terms of time. Aristotle says, no, no, you have to start with change and then define time in terms of change, not the other way around. Okay. So you might say, well, why go with Aristotle? Well, there's there's a lot of reasons actually to go with Aristotle here. Um, one is uh, the, the the standard conception has no explanation as to why time is like it is. Why is it spread out in the way that it is along this dimension? Why does it why does it continue to go in in both directions? And in particular, uh, this is a very big problem for the modern view. What what explains the arrow of time? Why how can we explain that past is different from future? Right? Uh, Aristotle can explain that because all change for Aristotle, this goes back to our earlier discussion, all change is, cha- is directed, is change from something towards something, towards an end. And so change already has a direction built into it. So time gets a direction parasitically from the direction of change itself. And I think that's right. That's, that's absolutely on the right path. So anyway, if you, if you accept that story, or at least, at least as a hypothesis, let's say, that uh, change is more important than time. Then um, the fact that then inertia turns out to be completely irrelevant the first way, because inertia says that if time passes and this thing is in motion at the beginning of time, then it will continue to be in motion as time passes. So inertia really is parasitic on the passage of time. Inertia just says, as time passes, your velocity will stay constant. Interesting fact, true fact, but metaphysically not very interesting, right? Because what I really want to know is why does time pass in the first place? Why does time move forward? And the, the answer is, has to be because change happens. Change comes first. Change sort of propels time forward. Okay, so some change is happening, but then what explains why that change is happening at that moment in time, right? Well, it either is something that's changeless, something that's non-temporal in nature, or it's something that's in time causing the change. If it's something in time causing the change, then the thing that's in time causing the change must itself change as it causes the change, right? Because it will have to change from not being a changer to being a changer of, of, that, of not being a cause of that particular change to being a cause of that particular change, right? So in other words, you know, the sun has got to move past some meridian, let's say, right? What causes it to move past that? Well, something in time does so, maybe it's the gravitational field or whatever. Well, then the gravitational field will have to change from being the cause, co- not being the cause of the sun's passing that meridian to being the cause of that particular change. Right? So that's another change in time. So we now we need another cause that explains why that, why the gravitational field changed in that way. And if that's in time, then you'll need another cause and so on. And so what, it, what Thomas is arguing, I think, is that the ultimate cause of change at any moment in time has to be something outside of time. It has to be something essentially change less. Right. And that's all you get from the first way, right? There is an entity which is which is active, can cause change, but it's not itself in time. It's not itself changing as it causes time. But that turns out to be a really, really interesting fact, if that's true. Um, and uh, you get all kinds of me- metaphysical mileage out of that out of that simple fact, if it is, if it is indeed true.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've got just so many things popping up <laughs> with, yeah. you know, the... Uh, um, change in relation to um, changing things is, is that a change um
1: yeah right and 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 so i mean the the question too is you know can we even make sense of the idea of, a, of an unchanging thing causing change given what i just said that it looks oh. like it's it's gonna have to change from not being the cause to being the cause of the change or make some other change in order to in order to keep going uh, and so the answer i think is that you have to think of the relationship between God, the first mover in this case, and, and time, on something like the analogy of an author and a book, right? So I like to use Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Right? So Tolkien is the cause of the three ages of the Lord of the Rings, If right? You know how this works, or four ages, depending on how you count them, right? And all the different temporal relations within the story, right? But if I ask, when did Tolkien write the Lord of the Rings was it in the first age or the second age right was it before or after you know Gandalf died that that question makes no sense you can't locate Tolkien's writing in the in the time span of the Lord of the Rings in the same way you can't ask when is God causing you know me to lift this can Um, because his causation of of the universe is outside of the time of this universe right he's he causes it by just saying let it be the whole thing, uh, past, present and future. Uh, and that doesn't involve any change within him, but anything else inside time that's causing change has to change in order to cause change. And so it can't be a stopping point for the explanation of why time itself moves forward.
0: Yeah, I, that, that makes sense. Um, that, that's kind of the way that, that I've, you know, broke it down, you know, like, to my daughters or something like that you know god is like he's the author he's outside of the story you know this 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 story is here and it was created by him um so yeah that's uh and i have you seen eleanor stumps um how she uh does the uh depiction of god and time in relation she was on um uh, closer to truth. And
1: yeah, I know some of the work that she did years ago, uh, with Norman Kretzmann. Um, so I think, yeah, I I mean, I'm sure that she has a similar kind of view of God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. But the visual is, it's Mm -hmm. so kind of clarifying, you know, Mm -hmm. the way that she does it. And I, I really had an aha moment. You know, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, oh, okay. I see. Mm -hmm. Um, So anybody that That
1: sounds interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's just a short video on closer Mm -hmm. to truth. And um, it's uh, she's asked about, you know, God in relation to time. And then she draws a little image and depiction. And and Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that Mm -hmm. makes so much sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Mm -hmm.
0: So, okay. um, Moving on to. The argument from efficient cause, which would be predicated, obviously, on the four causes of Aristotle. uh, And efficient cause would be the agent itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I take this second way to be focusing really on the fact of of existence. Like, why do things exist? Um, for, For Aristotle, you can actually talk about both the existence of what he calls substances, like you and me, the kind of fundamental building blocks of reality, and also the existence of our accidents, like our various characteristics, like the existence of my ability to speak English or my uh, being six foot tall, and so on. Those also kind of exist. But I think the second way really applies to both. It just it just recognizes that there's that there's existence out there. Um, again, I think it's helpful to back up a little bit and um, to say, well, what what is what's so special about existence? Um, Well, for Aristotle, there's an important distinction here between what's potential and what's actual. Uh, And uh, he's the first one to really clearly formulate that. So there are all kinds of things that are potential and that were potential that aren't actual, right? I could have trained to become a plumber instead of a philosopher. Uh, And so if I had, you know, I would now be a plumber, but I'm not, that's merely a potentiality that sort of passed by at some point. Um, You know, I could, there there are potentialities for the future, right? I could potentially, I guess, go to Afghanistan, I suppose, next year, but I probably won't, right? So I, that one, that's a future-oriented potential that's probably gonna remain potential. So, so there are all these possibilities or potentialities that are out there, right? Um, in a way, again, they're built into the fact that things have causal powers, right? that, that they don't have necessarily exercise, uh, especially people. Um, so there are all these possibilities out there. Um, among all those possibilities, there are some that are special, that are actual, right? So something, something's been added to them. Right? Something has been added to my being a philosopher that wasn't added to my being a plumber, that makes it actual, than am a philosopher. And so the, what the second way I think is saying is that, look, where, where you find these things combined, where they don't have to be combined. There's nothing about the logic of my being a philosopher that tells you that I have to be, it has to be actual. Or about the nature of actuality that has to include me as a philosopher. They are, they are just combined somehow. Uh, and, so, um, and so what we need to do is find a kind of source of this actual existence, uh, something that explains how it got combined with one option and not the other, ultimately. Um, and um, again, um, you know, you could I could explain some of these things in terms of my own choices, so that you know, I chose to be a philosopher and a plumber. That could be an explanation for the existence of that. But then that, that still raises the question: of, well, why did I exist in the first place uh, with my power of free will? And so, so eventually, you have to ask, you know, why does why does anything exist? Right? What's the explanation for existence in general? And it looks as though you know, the only kind of well, um, the only po- op- options here are uh, that there are some things that uh, are whose existence is uncaused, or uh, there's infinite regresses of causation where. Things are caused by other things which are caused by other things and so on and infinita and and thomas you know and aristotle both pretty quickly reject that second option uh and uh, say that look that isn't really an explanation for where the existence came from you're just kind of perpetually deferring the explanation you're saying well it came from this well where did that came from well that came from that, where did that from well that got from some other thing and so on but you're never really explaining where the existence came from in the first place so um so we can talk more about that but i think they're sort of i think they're right to reject that infinite regress uh, so then that means that we have to have have to have something that is a natural stopping point to this process, a thing whose existence doesn't need this kind of explanation. And remember, I said that, you know, the reason that I the reason why I need to explain why I exist or why I'm a philosopher is that there's nothing you know, there's there's a kind of combination of two different things here, the possibility of my being a philosopher and actuality somehow somehow brought together to make me actually a philosopher. So what we need is something that's a being of pure actuality. Is the way uh, Aristotle puts it. A being where the possibility of that being existing and the existing of that being are one and the same thing. Uh, it just, it's, it's very nature, it's very essence is just existence, uh, simpliciter, absolute existence. Um, and, um, and that seems right to me. Um, uh, that, that, that is exactly the kind of stopping point you'd have to find in order to explain where everything else gets its existence. So that's the second way.
0: Yeah, and I love, I often appeal to Aquinas as, you know, God is not a being amongst beings. He is being itself, reality, existence. Yeah. And we participate in that reality. And when we really fully grasp that concept, it totally removes um any issues with you know miracles or interaction and because we are woven into the fabric that is a reality along with it so everything yeah. that depends on God right. um, it it can be moved changed or done any kind of way uh, without any you know uh, interruption where you know where right. I, I think Hume would say a violation. Of the laws of physics
1: right uh, right exactly because nothing does anything except by god so right uh, so yeah the, there's no independent stuff to that god has to interfere with anyway yeah and the other thing that people i think misunderstand about this is already uh, this is al- already true for, in aquinas's time is if i say that god is being itself or existence itself one might think well that's actually a very thin characterization because like everything exists the pen exists the Can exist and so on. So you're saying that God is like this low common denominator that's shared by everything that exists. And and the answer to that is that no, because those things merely participate in existence. There's existence which is combined with some finite limiting nature, which is why that's merely a pen or merely a can and merely a human being. Whereas in God's case, existence is not combined with anything, right? So it's absolute existence, right? And Thomas spends quite a bit of time later in, in the Summa. Arguing that such a being would have to be perfect because if existence itself had built in limitations, right, then that would be limitations of what was possible, right, because nothing could exist without incorporating those, those limitations that are built into possibility itself, existence itself. So whatever is possible uh, has got to already be there in existence, right, uh, so that existence itself is, is unbounded. Right. Uh, and so that's that's what god is like he's unbounded he's not he's not the minimum kind of existence he's the maximum kind of existence
0: would it, would aquinas's um view be considered panentheism
1: yeah it's a good question um it's um no <laughs> i think uh and um for a couple reasons um so he says that, um, of course, God is simple, so God can't be said to have any parts. So you and I couldn't really be said to exist in God, which is what pan entheism entails. But also, it's, it's not quite right to say that God is in us either, because Aquinas also says that God can't be combined with anything else. So he's also sort of logically isolated. He can't be a part of something larger than himself uh, because he's so so absolute so uh so it can't be literally true that he's in us although we can say that he is in a sense because because we participate in his being so uh so he is in us in his power is, is the way thomas would put it but not in his essence um yeah that's close that's as much like yeah that's I guess, a, 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 well it,
0: it was yeah it was something mm-hmm. i i often thought about um you know with panentheism and, and, and i mean the Aquinas. thing
1: that's sort of right about panentheism, right, is is that, you know, we don't want to think of as though God and, and the creation are just utterly separate from each other and independent, yeah. right? That would be kind of a deistic picture, and that and that's certainly not what we have here.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, so uh, Aquinas would not object to uh, the real, concrete, physical world existing independently. Um, and I, I think that's one of the yeah. things that, that I go ahead.
1: Well, independence may be too strong a word, but well, it's, yeah, really, it's, yeah. dis, it's distinct from God. Right? Objectively. It isn't, it isn't God. It isn't part of God. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Really, really, no, really. Yeah. Really, really, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah mm-hmm. That's yeah. Independence definitely not the right word for yeah, that. Yeah. Um, on the infinite regress thing. Yeah. So I, I quite often I hear people, you know, well, you know it's possible it's possible and i you know the same thing that, that you said and you know uh josh rasmussen says and yeah it's possible but it doesn't tell us anything there, there's mm-hmm. no explanation yeah so yeah. when we say that it's possible that it it we i know it's logically possible it's metaphysically possible is it nomologically possible
1: yeah. Um, so, you know, I think Thomas actually thought it was. Um, he thought that if I, I think at least he certainly thought it was metaphysically possible. He thought that God could have created a universe in which uh, in some sense um, there's an infinite regress of causation. Um, but Thomas following uh, Evicenna and others make a distinction between um, per se and per accidents or accidental causal series. And the way I understand this is that uh, a series which is sort of accidentally infinite is one where, yes, the effect has a cause and that has a cause and so on ad infinitum. But the fact that the series is infinite doesn't really matter. It, there's, there's, there's still a, an overarching explanation for the whole thing. And so the infinity is not, is not um, ultimate, you might say, right? It's only sort of penultimate. Um, the example that, that Aquinas gives would be uh, of, a, of a blacksmith making a horseshoe and with a hammer. And he says, suppose a blacksmith used a hammer to make a horseshoe. Fine. Suppose he uses two hammers to make a horseshoe. Does that really change things? No, not really. Three hammers? No. Suppose he used an infinite number of hammers to make this horseshoe, but it still he did it in the usual way. That's fine. Right. Uh, and so likewise, you know, God could have created me through an infinite number of intermediaries if he wanted to. But there would still be this underlying cause, which was God right, giving being to the whole infinite series. Right? So I think that's, that's an interesting way to go. And again, some, something that's important to recognize I, because earlier I said, you know, he rules out infinite regresses and that's actually not quite right. Uh, so I'm glad I had a chance to correct myself and say, he rules out a, what he calls a per se infinite regress. That is an infinite regress that is uh, itself, um, not itself explained by anything else. Sort of ultimately infinite regress, you might call it. that. He thinks is impossible because, as you said, it wouldn't really be an explanation of anything. Right? Uh, it certainly wouldn't explain where existence came from—my existence or yours.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's another thing about um, Aquinas. I think uh, a lot of people miss is he's willing to work within um, an eternal existence or being yep. or 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 universe he he wasn't a um you know kalam guy yeah <laughs> was, yeah uh so now, i
1: mean full disclosure i've written some positive things about kalam arguments myself so this is at one point where i cautiously disagree with the kindness maybe yeah. um but i think it's not a huge disagreement ultimately it's just saying that uh um, that one of the things that he worried about he didn't really have to worry about because <laughs> in fact it may not be possible
0: yeah yeah i uh i, I definitely like uh, variations of i like the academic level uh cosmological arguments not the you know youtube philosophers right. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so
1: yeah.
0: um yeah so uh on well i guess it's time's kind of moving along so yeah. we'll, well this one part three is probably my favorite part. Of all Mm -hmm. of it which we could probably do a whole show on right Um, right but the argument to necessary being is does he structure it like Leibniz does or did or did Leibniz structure his after uh, Aquinas's in a way
1: yeah I mean Leibniz is definitely drawing on not just Aquinas but again this whole tradition uh Mm -hmm. that that stands behind Aquinas um there's a lot of there's a lot of the similar argument in, in Maimonides and Avicenna as well. Um, so, uh, and Leibniz is aware of, and Scotus, actually. So, uh, so, so Leibniz is kind of drawing people before and after Aquinas as well as Aquinas himself. But I think you know, there are some significant differences, I think. Um, so um, the focus really is, I mean, in the third way, in a way, the focus is still on existence. But now we're focusing specifically on contingent existence to begin with existence that that uh, doesn't have uh, any necessity right? uh, either built into itself or deriving from something else right and the you know again the intuition is there's lots of things in the world that could that exist but could have failed to exist for a variety of reasons right i exist by my parents you know they might have Never met each other, or you know, the first day could have gone really badly, and so on and and so I might not exist i, I could I could fail to exist and so and it seems like there 's lots of things like that, maybe most things are like that um, and then again, um, you know if you try to explain um, a contingent thing in terms of another contingent thing in terms of another contingent thing, you know there 's something unsatisfying about that. Because uh, a whole series of contingent things is still contingent, (laughs) so now you just got a bigger thing that's contingent that needs whose existence needs explanation. So the only really satisfying uh, explanation stopper would be to get to a being that's necessary, that has being and couldn't fail to exist. You know, has it of of necessity. And actually, that's just the first part of the third way, right? Uh, The second part of the third way then says, okay, even that's not God yet because there could be things that, uh, at least in principle, that have a kind of necessity, but not in and of themselves, but derive their necessity from something else. So if God, I mean, it's not clear that there are such things, but suppose that God, you know, made the natural numbers exist, like one, two, three, four, and so on. And suppose that he's just the kind of person who would necessarily do that. So in fact, the number one and two, they exist in every possible world. They couldn't really fail to exist because God's here and he's gonna make them exist. But they don't have existence in themselves, right? Their existence depends on God, on something that, that has necessity of itself. And so again, Thomas argues, you know, that if you had a bunch of things that had necessity, but not a necessity in themselves, but a kind of condi- con- conditional necessity, there'd have to be something that has unconditional necessity in order to explain where these things got their conditional necessity. If you had just a series of conditionally necessary things, then again, there, there'd be nothing, there'd be no source for their necessity, right? Uh, The whole series would be, in a sense, not necessary because you could just deny all the conditions and there wouldn't be any undeniable condition that's supporting the whole thing. So I think it's an interesting argument. I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's a valid argument, uh, at least given the right kinds of assumptions. Uh, And that gives you a being that not only has necessity, necessary existence, but its necessary existence is sort of self-explanatory self-contained in some way and that you can see how the second and third way really reinforce each other in fact the third way you might say is a kind of a development of the second way in some sense yeah
0: so does he in um the part three argument does he go as far as to argue for a um of the necessary being
1: um yeah i think i think that's uh, that's that's right um, i'm trying to remember now what he says I mean, he doesn't really say very much in that article itself, right? All he says is we have a being that is necessary per se, necessary in and, in and through itself, right? And at least one, right? We haven't even got, we haven't proved there's only one of them yet at this point. Um, and something that, from which all the other necessary beings derive their necessity, and such that, of course, all contingent existing things depend on this necessary foundation. So the per se necessary beings right at the very bottom of this whole process the most fundamental thing and so yeah so then the question is what and this will be come up in later articles what would a being have to be like to be not just necessary but necessary in and of itself right and that leads i think much of the same conclusion we saw in the second way it would have to be existence itself right so that uh there was no possibility of it's not being because that's just what it is it just is by very nature the source of existence
0: yeah. And that's so at this point is usually when people kind of uh, pivot and want to know, well, why does it have to be a perfect being? Why does it have to be something, to, you know, um, yeah. like it's something of that nature, which is, you know, in part four, the argument from gradation? Um, right. I That's probably the one I understand the least. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, I-, I think it's. So I've got my own take on this one too. So again, full disclosure, this is the Kuhnsian interpretation of fourth way. It's not, it's not, no one else has quite the same interpretation, I don't think. Um, but I think um, people have mistranslated the fourth way actually to some extent. So it's helpful to actually go back to the Latin in this case. And especially it's important to go back to Aristotle because he refers to uh, book two of the metaphysics in the fourth way and in the parallel passage in the Summa Contra Cantiles. And so anyway, um, this is sort of background to my interpretation. I take the fourth way to be making this point essentially, that where you have something that belongs to a certain kind of thing, and is the cause of anything in that kind, necessarily the cause of anything in that kind, uh, it's going to have to be supremely a member of that kind. It's gonna to have to have, the characteristics of that kind to the greatest possible degree. So an example he gives, is a helpful example, I think. In, in, in Aristotelian in physics or chemistry, there's this thing called fire, right, which is um, the cause, in a sense, of of all heat. Things are hot by having more fire in them and in cold if they have less fire. We could think of fire as like energy, right? So the more energy you have, the hotter you are, right? And in a sense, um, you know, the idea is that if, if we can say that energy itself has a temperature or, or, or a heat, which maybe it doesn't, but if it did, it would have, to have the, it would have to be maximally hot, right, in order to be the cause of the heat of everything else. And so the idea is that if God is the cause of all being, all possible being, right, then he has to be being in the most extreme kind. He has to be perfect being. Unlimited being, right? Because again, if he were if he were limited being in some way, then there'd be kinds of being, possible kinds of being that would be greater than him, right? And then he couldn't be the cause of those kinds of greater forms being. But we've just proven in the first three ways, right, that he has to be the cause of any possible being whatsoever. So he has to have being to the greatest possible degree. So I mean, the thing that's still hard, of course, for people to grasp then is what does it mean to say that something is more than something else right uh, and again in analytic philosophy we're sort of trained early on to think that you know it, existence is just binary either you exist or you don't uh it doesn't really make any sense to say that some things have more being than others uh but of course um the Aristotelian tradition would disagree and say no there's actually a good reason to talk about existence or being as having degrees here um so you know that's a big discussion, obviously. Um, yeah. But the thought is that look, there's a sense in which a living thing, right, has powers and capacities that exceed the powers and capacities of any non-living thing in a sort of obvious way. Um, I mean, the, you could imagine, I mean, inorganic things have a certain mass. You could imagine a living thing with the same mass, right? So, so on all the on all the characteristics that non-living things have, you could always imagine a living thing that could match it. But living things have things like perception, right? Rove, you know, and so on, reproduction, that, that you can't imagine not inorganic things having. They just completely lack that capacity. So living things just have being of a broader, deeper, more extensive kind than, than non-living things. And likewise, rational animals like you and I, you know, exceed other living things by being able to do science and philosophy and understand things. Again, capacities are just no, nothing there like that in the non-living world. So we've got an even higher degree of being, right? And so the thought is, you know, just keep extending that. Um if if there are angels, they would have greater kind of being than we have, and uh and so on. And and then if you imagine the greatest possible you can imagine, um, there's going to be something even greater than that, which is going to be the cause of its being and that will have the maximum kind of being. So that means that, you know, if we want to say, will this first cause be alive? Well, yes, in a sense, right? Because it, it, it's got to have being to a much greater degree than any merely living thing. Will it be rational or intelligent? Well, yes, because it's got to be the cause of all the rational intelligent sorts of things and, and so on. So all the perfections, all the things that we contribute to beings that don't entail or imply any kind of limitation can be applied truthfully to God. Right? So you might say, "Well, God's the cause of cubes, so is he cubical?" Well, no, because cubicality in, entails limitation. Right? It, it, cubes are only located in some places and not in others. They have a certain size and not any bigger. So those kind of predicates can't be applied to God. But power, cubes have power. Yes. Does God have power? Yes. So so power, knowledge, love, these things don't imply any limitations. And so they can be, they can be applied all the way up the hierarchy, so to speak, right up to God himself.
0: Yeah, it, it seems to me to be intuitive, at least on some sense, um, that, that if God has any attributes or uh, it would have to be in a perfect way, it doesn't seem like he could, you know, especially if he's a simple being, um, You know, yeah. how, how he could cha- be an immutable. He, he can't gain m- yeah. more power or something like that. But a lot of people yeah. actually push back on the idea that if God has an attribute, it doesn't necessarily follow, that it has to be um at maximum. And I'm just like... I- No, it it seems as though it has to. And,
1: you know, this reminds me, we go all the way back to the first way, actually, right? And so let's let's say that we've accepted that God is this timeless being, right? So for, for Aristotle, again, that means that God must be a changeless being, not just an actually unchanging being, but a being that couldn't possibly change. Because if there were any possibility of change in God, then, then that would put God in time because we would say he could change, but he didn't, right? And so time would be sort of measuring his restfulness rather than his change. So to be truly timeless, God's got to be beyond the possibility of change. This is very clear in Aristotle actually already. But but any finite being is in principle changeable because those finite boundaries could be a little bit bigger, a little bit less than they are in fact. And so only an infinite being uh, could be changeless, absolutely changeless, right? Because it would have capacities that by the very nature have no boundary whatsoever right and so there's no possibility of even kind of fluctuating boundaries as is the case for all for all finite things and
0: yeah that's It makes sense to me. um, But for some reason, there's some people who just (laughs) they they don't want to like that. If you're a
1: reductionist about things like life and mind, if you thought if you thought that really there's just atoms in the void and and, you know, what we call life and mind is just, uh, you know, kind of arrangements of those things. Then 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 we lose this this sort of argument. Right. Um, I mean, all you can say is that God is real and he's powerful and that would be it. Um, but I think that's, I think that kind of reductionism is very implausible for you know, independent reasons.
0: Right. Yeah. It's uh, matter of fact, uh, the new hot um, position to take is um, muriological nihilism.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it, you're kind of just like... <laughs> I don't yeah. know what to do with that. I mean, if if things—it seems, seems to me that
1: that either you and I don't exist, right, yeah. or I'm some kind of little particle floating around in my brain or something, and I think that yeah. I'm this three-dimensional extended thing. Both of things seem really bizarre. Uh, yeah, I, I agree.
0: Yeah, it it kind of cuts the the feed out from everything, and like you say, it just okay. It, there's this this being that's uh, necessary and and all powerful. That's. Uh, you know, and, well, how do you get to God? Well, you took everything else out. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, you can't, if you, if your view of the created world is completely wrong, it's going to be hard for you to get to God, right? Uh, you you have to, you have to build on some fairly reliable knowledge about the creation.
0: You know what that, uh, I'm going to create a meme with that quote. If your view is wrong <laughs> yeah, yeah. from Rob Coons. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and as we talked earlier, the argument from design is more about it's the, the purpose or pointedness or um, how would you kind of sum that one up?
1: Yeah, this is a harder one. So we mentioned earlier, the idea that, you know, things have causal powers and those causal powers themselves have a reference to the future, even to unrealized futures. Right. So there's a kind of intentionality as people put it, in even in the inorganic physical world by virtue of these these causal powers. Electron is sort of referring to possible states that may never happen, uh, where it, it where it's, it's repelling or attracting other particles through these powers. So uh, so that's certainly right. That that's really all Aristotle or Aquinas mean by teleology or final causation or or natural purposes, right? They don't mean that the electron actually thinking about where it's going has feelings or urges or nothing like that. They're not panpsychists or anything like that. They're not attributing kinds of those kinds of feelings or urges to to inorganic things. They're just saying we live in a world where things are directed in certain directions by by their causal powers. And uh, that Aquinas seems to be arguing here is already some reason to attribute something like purposefulness to God himself as the kind of ultimate ground of these purposes that we see in, in nature. Um, so I think that's a big part of the argument. That's, that's Ed Faser's interpretation, actually, Gavin Kerr's. They say, that's it, end of, end of, end of fifth way. Uh, I think there's maybe more going on there. Um, it's a bit tricky. Um, I, I, I take the, the parallel passages in the Summa Gentiles and in De Veritate to be clues to what Aquinas means in the fifth way. But you could say, no, he's abandoned those when he gets a fifth way. So, so there's an interpretive issue here. But I take them as clues, and so I take. I think there is a kind of design argument here in Aquinas. But it's, um, I think it's one that he gets from John of Damascus actually, in the Orthodox faith, where the, it's the design is just the fact that things have powers that fit together in such a way that they're able to exercise their powers jointly. Uh, so if you had if you had photons that had a power to um, energized electrons, and there were just no electrons, <laughs> then that power would be odious. Right? And you can sort of imagine a world where you had a bunch of particles and each particle had a bunch of powers, but none of the powers could ever be exercised because there weren't any other particles with the, with the right kind of uh, fit to the powers that they have. Or you could imagine a world where all the particles would just destroy each other immediately in one gigantic you know, big boom. Uh, and, and so um, what John Damascus says is, look, um, God obviously arranged things in such a way that things are able to persist through time and exercise these powers, and these potentialities jointly cooperatively in order to create a kind of stable universe. And so you don't even need to get to God and you know, the eye and all that stuff, right? Just the fact that our inorganic universe, you know, is persisting and kind of functioning in a regular way uh, points to the, to the idea there's a kind of design behind it all.
0: Yeah, it's uh, right. It And so, to me that it seems to be another it's one of my favorite words kind of intuitive that uh you don't get order from chaos uh i mean the balance um the persistence like you said through time the uniformity of nature you know these things it's it just doesn't seem plausible to me that uh you could just get that out of you know some kind of chaotic cosmic accident or something. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, Arthur Pryor has an interesting argument. It's sort of an anticipation of of Richard Swinburne in some ways that he says, you know, there's, there's like 10 to the 80th particles in the universe popping out of the Big Bang. Almost all of them fit into a very small number of, of kinds of particles, maybe 20 or 30 or something like that. That's amazing. Right? Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's an incredible. If That's just a coincidence. That seems really bizarre. So it's, it's as if, again, there's somebody who said, let's just test lots and lots of particles, but let's make them all electrons or protons or neutrons or quarks or, you know, uh, make them all similar to each other so that we get. A coherent, intelligible world, right? Yeah. Uh, can just imagine. I an mean, atomist, ancient atomist like Democritus actually thought the world was made of an infinitely small, infinitely num- number of microscopic things, and each one was unique no two of them belong to the same kind at all. And of course, wow. in such a world, you couldn't do science. There's no possible chemistry, yeah. right? If every atom is totally unique from like, the other one. So, you know, we sort of miss that, right? We get kind of get used to this order the universe got created. And we're not sort of amazed by it as we should be, right? Wow. Uh, you know, there's so many darn hydrogen atoms around. What's going on, right? Uh, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's it's another one that I actually have a friend that um. Hoping to have on the show, uh, you may know him, Seth Hart. Uh, I think you know oh, Seth yeah, Hart. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think he was at one of your conferences not too yeah, long ago. Right. But um, uh, he's going to come on and talk about teleology and biology. The um, yeah, uh, philosophy yeah, of that biology. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah you know, I've, I've got this whole project where I've been working on looking at uh, quantum theory from an Aristotelian point of view and arguing that, um, that actually, um, all my colleagues who are reductionists are working with an outdated Maxwell Newton kind of picture of science. And that if you're, if you really understand quantum mechanics, it actually pushes you towards an anti-reductionist view about chemistry and then ultimately about biology.
0: Yeah. what it, it's, everything's probabilistic. It's, uh, There's, you we have to have this Everettian model or the many worlds hypothesis to even try to keep uniformity.
1: Exactly. Um, That's right. (laughs) That's right. So you have to do these desperate measures. So the way I'd like to think about it, you know, if, if you were a reductionist, you would think that as you got down to these smaller and smaller things, things would get more and more definite and determinate and sort of settled. And what we find is you you just emerge in this cloud of uncertainty and and potentiality as you get to the smaller things. It's only the bigger stuff like us that actually has any kind of definite determinate state at any given point in time. And that that pushes very strongly against a kind of micro reductionist uh, picture of the world
0: Yeah, I love uh, quantum mechanics. I could go yeah. on and on about it. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's really where philosophy meets science. It's, yeah, Um Because yeah. there's so many philosophical positions, you know, in quantum mechanics itself. Everything yeah. there is, you know... Pretty much hypothesis at this point where
1: it's what's really interesting that's right whereas you know nobody talked about the interpretation of newton right <laughs> that was pretty clear <laughs> right uh, yeah. and so suddenly you know we have 18 different interpretations of quantum mechanics that's really significant i think um yeah i think it shows that we've lost our way and lost our Aristotelian bearings right and so we're driven to all these extreme measures to try to recap recover things
0: yeah i think i think people you know take methodological naturalism so um serious that they 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 have to construct these models you know to to keep that method and it's like
1: it's like methodological materialism really or micro right in effect
0: and and none of this necessarily leads to a theistic view you don't you know there's uh, like um bernardo castor you can you know he's He's not reductionist at all. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's a naturalist, um, right? So, so here, yeah. he, here are some uh, hard questions for you. Okay. Um, I know you don't claim to be an Aquinas expert, but today you are. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll try my best. <laughs> yeah. What do you think Aquinas's favorite dessert was?
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah you know i don't know i you, you see different portrayals of him some of them he's quite hefty right <laughs> yeah chunky <monkey>. so, <laughs> which i suspect those are the more accurate ones you know, i guess yeah. so i'm guessing something like sticky pudding right would be the Ooh. thing that uh, he would go for
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, i like some bread pudding That's
1: yeah bread exactly good. yeah
0: all right if you had to pick between country music rap and heavy metal, which one do you think Aquinas would take?
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah, okay. Oh, I don't know. I guess maybe, ooh, that's a tough one. I don't really <laughs> know rap or heavy metal that well.
0: Oh, okay. But
1: um, So uh, I'm not sure. I mean, he might go as rap, actually, just because it, I mean, he is, he was a poet, right? I mean, he yeah. wrote, wrote hymns. So, uh, and that's maybe the most poetical of those
0: three, yeah, he could probably write some bars yeah yeah do you uh w- I we like have... that answer now I'm gonna
1: go with that there yeah. there you go <laughs> All right. that's his final answer.
0: <laughs> do you have uh a few minutes for uh a couple of questions or a few sure. questions yeah okay we we had some interesting ones um, and they were imploring me to um ask so uh one of them is. My resident Barthian. Um, mm,
1: okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I got to find out. I have to scroll through. I, anybody want to be a producer? I'll pay you 50 cents a day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Uh, it is basically in a nutshell, I'll find it here is, uh, what do you think of uh, Barth's um, uh, critique of
1: natural theology or rejection of it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I find his interpretation of Romans one pretty implausible, actually. Right. So Romans 1, 18, 19, right? That's the sort of charter of natural theology you might say, right? God's eternal nature is revealed in the things that he's made. And Barth's interpretation of that is it's precisely the unintelligibility of things that he made that, that somehow proves that I don't know, doesn't prove, but points us to this. This uh, other, a wholly other being and so on. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I just don't think that that's a plausible reading. What Paul's saying, right? And and Paul's clearly alluding to things like in the some of the deuter- Deuterocanonical works, like Wisdom of Solomon, where it says, you know, points us to, you know, the various wonderful things in nature, uh, the the adaptations, and so on, as as pointing to pointing to a creator. So, uh, so there's that, and then there's the analogy of being stuff. And I think here. um well, this is another big debate. Obviously, I don't think Barth gets gets Aquinas quite right on analogy. I think he reads him as being too much of uh, of a Scotist, Really, he thinks that uh, that being is univocal, and uh, and that God is being and our being exactly the same. And, and clearly, Aquinas doesn't want to quite say that, right? He he does accept the fact that God is radically different from us. Right? Um, and so, you know, I mean, there's. Just one last thing, right? I mean, Aquinas' natural theology is pretty negative, really. I mean, it, it, in fact, it, it keeps emphasizing the fact we don't really know what God is like, right? Uh, what we really know is that he's not like us and that he's the cause of things. And so we can we can we we know that we, in some sense, can attribute all these perfections to God, but what they actually mean in God is beyond our ken. So I mean, we do wanna emphasize that kind of, Agnostic side of Aquinas. Some people sort of accuse Aquinas of being an agnostic, right? Because he's so, at sometimes he's so cautious about drawing conclusions about, about God's nature.
0: Okay, yeah, it's um, and just to make sure, he asked me again in a different way. Um, <laughs> the trustees, yeah, uh, the... I mean, does,
1: does he know uh, planning as a response to Bart? Um, he might look that up. So I basically agree with planning. I think on that.
0: Oh, I didn't know that planning. Uh... I had a response. I think it's in
1: I think it's in um a Christian belief. I've got that book. I'm gonna have to on, look at that. Maybe right. it's, it's not, been so it's long. I'll I... have to find it so maybe somewhere else. I could I could look it up for you.
0: Yeah, I'll have to. Um it's been so long since I read it, I, I can't remember now if, if he did or not. Um I ha of course my my um physics guy wants to know about are physics included in the fifth way or mainly biology I yeah. think you kind of answered most of that but yeah
1: it's almost it's, it's certainly included uh, even more so than biology really i think
0: yeah and oh so somebody's letting a cat out of the bag Are you you're working on a new book with your version of cumulative philosophical case uh, yeah. Existence? yeah.
1: That's still on the uh, planning stage. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so as I mentioned, Dan and I are going to work on, a, are working on a book on the five ways. So I think, we'll, I think I'm going to get that out first and yeah. then uh, then maybe turn my, my thinking to that uh, cumulative case. But, uh, but yeah, that's a promissory note, I'm afraid, at this point.
0: And this one is for me, just to give me confidence for today. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. All right. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. One of my students
1: called me that once, but it was many years ago.
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, okay. So somebody getting the nitty gritty. Are you worried about? joe schmidt's upcoming monograph on classical
1: theism well i'm, I'm just really not worried but I I, think, <laughs> I I mean i'm very impressed by joe i mean he's an amazing yes young man i mean he's yes. he's he, what was he just graduated or in the process of graduating he's an undergraduate he's published several things and i've interacted with him quite a bit uh but no i think um well look um Obviously, the debate over classical theism is never going to end, right? Because it is making these really radical claims about God, right? I mean, He's just off the charts uh, in terms of all of our expectations about ordinary things. And so there's always going to be material there for the skeptic to say, I just don't get it, or come on, these are incompatible, or whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, I understand the. I, I feel the pull of those things, but I also feel the pull of these first cause arguments saying you need a first cause, but it's going to have to be radically different from everything else to be a first cause. It can't be on the same plane as us. Right. And so, um, you yeah, know, I feel pressure, both these things. Right. And, and I uh, and this is why uh, women sort of with Aquinas thinking, you know, you have to posit a God, but you also have to be very humble about our grasping what that's like right and we just mostly we're just going to say negative things about it and if schmidt or somebody else says but how is it possible for god to do this i don't know (laughs) i'm not hopefully someday i'll understand that but at this point uh, i can't answer those how is it possible kind of questions
0: right and we had one last one pop up um and this is from real a theology again i believe it's one of the bins over there i think it's ben watkins i'm not sure as a leading defender of theism, I would love to know what Dr. Koontz thinks about atheistic philosophy of religion. How have things changed yeah. since the day of J.L. Mackey, to Oppie and Draper?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting case where I, I do think that the two sides have sharpened each other in various ways. So I think, you know, although I have a lot of respect for Mackey and, and Sobel. Uh, I knew Howard pretty well and we interacted quite a bit. I think he did some really good work, but yeah, I think, I think, and I don't know Draper's work that well, but I know Oppie's work. I think he's doing great stuff uh, because he's responsive to, you know, the latest uh, theistic arguments. And, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about how to respond to Graham. So, uh, so yeah, this is, a, this is what philosophy is supposed to be like, right? It's supposed to be this dialogue where, you know, iron sharpens iron. and so Right. Uh, I think yeah. I, both sides are making real progress.
0: I, yeah, I joke all the time about, um, uh, Oppy being the saint of, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> but, uh, right that's right uh, yeah on the other side he's he's such a gentleman he, yeah uh,
1: yeah. Um, yeah yeah i appreciate I, I, that i mean the thing you know the, the the thing that i that i don't like is just is being ignored by so many people right um i mean i wish more atheist philosophers would you know join the fray
0: right yeah, there's a we, there's a few good ones out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there definitely needs to be more. I, I I I agree. I think philosophy of religion it's it's not just a religious thing. You know, yeah. it's right. we we need good questions. You know, we yeah. we need to think these things through and and make sure we have a defensible. Um, you know, yeah. uh, rational position.
1: I, yeah, if I were an atheist, I'd still find it fascinating. I, I, I yeah, I, I, would I wouldn't too. be able to stay away from it. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I would yeah. still be in philosophy of religion yeah. if yeah. If, a, if I ever was, you know, yeah. agnostic or an atheist. I think that's right. So, And we have come over the one hour and 10 minute mark. So I kept you a little right. bit longer, um, well, but I am very grateful and thank you so much for, Joining this show, um, I've enjoyed every minute of it, and I'm going to have to go back and listen a couple of times because there was so much good information, and I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, my, my pleasure. Thanks, thanks, Eddie.
0: yeah And for everybody that's out there um, watching, thank you guys for being active in the chat. Thank you for everybody that was here, and we will see you next time. I hope to have a few shows coming up soon. Um, not such a long layoff again, but. Uh, With that, you guys have a great day.